Ukraine wants more USA to fight Russia. Republicans say the U.S. has its own problems. How's this going to play out? The lead starts right now. Will the president of Ukraine get his wish? Meeting on Capitol Hill and now at the White House, making the case that his country is fighting a losing battle with Russia. And any delay from Congress is a dream come true for Vladimir Putin. Plus, major rift. President Biden privately telling supporters Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu needs to change his strategy and his plans for Gaza, and that Netanyahu himself needs to change. Will Biden's, Biden's comments now impact the relationship with Israel? And the lead live from Des Moines, Iowa, ahead of a major event in the 2024 race, a CNN town hall tonight with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But did the Florida Republican just miss out on a big endorsement? Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We are live from Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa. In just a few hours, I'm gonna be moderating a town hall with Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as he fields questions from voters less than five weeks before the all-important Iowa caucuses. The stakes are incredibly high for DeSantis as he seeks to distance himself from frontrunner, former President Donald Trump while picking up his voters. He's also fending off a challenge from close competitor Nikki Haley, who is about to score a major endorsement in New Hampshire, the first in the nation primary state. Iowans have lots of questions for the governor about domestic and foreign policy, the economy, Social Security, as two bloody and consequential wars rage and the United States finds itself as a critical inflection point. Right now, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is at the White House on an 11th hour invite from President Biden as U.S. support for the embattled nation hangs in the balance and Republicans tie the destiny of $60 billion of new aid to Ukraine to U.S. border policy. They insist on more radical border policy change beyond the nearly $14 billion in additional funding in border security already included in the White House's uh, proposed package. We're going to walk you through just what the Republicans want in a moment. But first, today's visit to Washington, much more sobering than Zelensky's first trip there nearly a year ago. A hero's welcome at the U.S. Capitol last December. Today, Zelensky was pleading with skeptical lawmakers as he grapples with a new stage of war <clears throat> where it is widely accepted that Ukraine's spring counteroffensive has not succeeded, even failed. A top Ukrainian official telling CNN, that the world doesn't understand Ukraine is, quote, already losing without the USA, unable to launch offensive operations with just enough ammunition to defend its current positions against Russian aggressors. As morale among Ukraine's ranks tumbles and Russia re revels in what it sees as desperation, President Zelensky will have to answer the hard question. What is Ukraine's plan? Moments from now, President Biden and Zelensky will host a joint news conference. We'll bring that to you live as it happens. But first, we are covering all of this from the White House to Ukraine, Russia, and back to Capitol Hill. Uh, let us start right now with CNN's MJ Lee, who's live at the White House for us. MJ, this is Zelensky's third visit to Washington since the war in Ukraine broke out. Both Biden and Zelensky agree on the need for additional aid. Uh, what are they hoping to achieve from this meeting and from this visit? 
Well, Jake, I think by now it is abundantly clear to both President Biden and President Zelensky that this Ukraine funding that both leaders want is not going to get done before the calendar year. Even after President Zelensky uh, made the trip to Capitol Hill to make that personal appeal to lawmakers, lawmakers afterwards making clear that they are going to leave town uh, for the holidays before the supplemental package uh, gets taken up. Uh, but look, I think White House and U.S. officials would argue that this trip uh, by President Zelensky to Washington, D.C. is not just narrowly about the issue of U.S. funding for Ukraine, but it is also about broadly sending a message to the world that is watching, uh, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, with U.S. officials arguing that this sends an important message to Russia at this moment in the war that the U.S. and the international coalition that has backed Ukraine continues to back the country's, uh, the country's mission of fighting back Russia. And they're also saying that this is important for sending a message to the would-be aggressors that are taking cues from a visit like this uh, as well. Uh, of course, not helping uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people in terms of getting additional funding is a public opinion that has shifted here in the U.S. Uh, even over the last year or so, and really just bringing into stark uh, contrast uh, what a different Washington, D.C. President Zelensky is visiting now compared to a year ago, the last time that he met with President Biden here at the White House, Jake. That's right. MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Russia uh, has lost uh, a staggering 87 percent, 87 percent of the total number of its active duty troops it had prior to invading Ukraine. That's according to newly declassified U.S. intelligence. Still, despite these heavy losses, Putin seems determined to continue to push forward. And CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Jim Shudo is at the magic wall for us. Uh, so, Nick, let me start with you. What are you hearing from Ukrainian forces, soldiers and commanders. Yeah, a palpable sense of concern, anger even, that this somewhat distant debate on the other side of the planet about whether or not border problems can be solved at the same time as Ukraine's war here being funded actually potentially could impact their decision to survive on the battlefield in the weeks or months ahead. Remember, Ukraine's defense of its territory here is taking back of parts of it from Russian invading forces, utterly dependent on Western assistance, Western munitions, Western money. That is impacting morale here already. Even if funding does magically somehow come forwards, there are still feelings amongst Ukrainian troops that that Western unity is beginning to crumble certainly, and other signs of issues here too. The defence minister today joking that the chief of staff of the military seen publicly to be at odds with Zelensky over the past weeks or so because that counteroffensive really hasn't gone the way uh, that many had hoped in the West, that indeed the chief of the army hadn't in fact been fired yet. The fact that that kind of joke gets made publicly suggests there are palpable tensions uh, because essentially uh, of the failure of that counteroffensive. What comes next? Well, Zelensky himself in Washington pointing at the possibility they might be able to do more long-range attacks on Russian positions in Crimea but really what is the broader plan to strike a victory against Russia that means Ukraine can feel it's happy with the situation it might resort to diplomacy over. We're seeing near Kherson, the city we were in 48 hours ago, 
intense attacks against civilian populations there, but on the other side of the river that it sat on, Ukraine making a bit of a long shot advance towards Russian positions, detached from their own supply lines on the other side of the river. Unclear where that's going to go. Further away to the east, Russia on its front foot, moving around a city called Avdivka, another sign of the amount of resources of lives they're willing to, to necessarily waste to take a town of minimal strategic importance. But Putin, very high tolerance for casualties here, great patience, and really waiting for this moment of Western frailty to finally emerge. Here it is, and he must be looking forward, frankly, to this bleak winter ahead. Jake? Indeed. Jim, Republicans in Congress, including House Speaker Mike Johnson, say uh, they are not convinced that Ukraine has a winning strategy going forward. Uh, tell us why you think it has stalled, the, this counteroffensive. Well, this is what U.S. military officials tell me. Ukrainian forces ran into three really difficult lines of defense that Russia had months to dig in and plant tens of thousands of landmines and dig into uh, repel as best they could the oncoming Ukrainian advance. I'm told a couple other issues that have emerged is that one, uh, a lot of these weapon systems, new weapon systems came to Ukraine and they were only able to train on them for a few weeks. New German tanks, new U.S. tanks, other weapon systems. In addition to that, I'm told there's been some looking back now with 2020 vision saying that the U.S. and its partners tried to turn Ukrainian forces into something close to a U.S. military force capable of combined arms. That's ground operations, air operations, again, with just a few weeks or a few months training. And even with years of training, this is difficult to break through. And of course, Ukrainians have a tremendous disadvantage in terms of air power. They just don't have it yet. And the F-16s you talk about, they're not going to come soon enough or in significant enough numbers to change that. I will say this, though, Jake, where Ukrainians have had success is down here in the Black Sea. They have forced back the Russian Black Sea feet by dozens of miles due to attacks from cruise missiles, including the Storm Shadow missile, as well as sea drones, which has opened up sea lanes here, which is crucial to the Ukrainian economy. So it's not all defeat on the battlefield for Ukraine, but it is a really, really difficult time. I reported 10 days ago, Jake, that Russia was going to be increasing targeting of civilian targets over these winter months, and we've seen that in the last several days. All these missiles coming in on Ukrainian cities are time to this moment. Russia senses weakness, and they want to increase the suffering among the civilian population. All right, Jim Shuto in Washington, D.C., CNN's Nick Payton Walsh in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Now to CNN's Manu Raju, who's on Capitol Hill. Uh, Manu, House Speaker Mike Johnson says that his condition of tying any future aid to Ukraine to uh, this conservative border security proposal that passed the House, H.R. 2, uh, it seems to have remained uh, unchanged after meeting with Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, earlier today. Uh, what exactly is in the Republicans' border security bill? Well, it's a combination of measures, Jake, including new physical barriers that they want erected along the southern borders, in addition to changes to asylum policies, making it harder for migrants who are fleeing their countries to apply for asylum and receive asylum, changing also parole policies, how the president can grant parole to broad groups of people, trying to pair that authority back, as well as other measures, such as ensuring that migrants have to stay in Mexico while their immigration proceedings are taking place in the 
United States and some other things that Democrats have pushed back against, including detention centers for migrants who are crossing the border illegally. Now, I talked to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer about some of these ideas and why they're not willing to accept some level of these proposals in order to get a deal to unlock Ukraine aid. He indicated they're willing to meet in the middle, but he said that Republican policies go too far. Given what's happening at the border, do you not, why not agree to more restrictive asylum policies, dealing with the president's parole authority in order to unlock aid to Ukraine? The bottom line is very simple. We are willing to meet in the middle. We have moved far more away from the president's original bill than they have moved off H.R. 2, and we want to come to a deal to meet people in the middle. You, everyone knows that H.R. 2 can't pass. It's a total, total abdication of everything. It's Trump's policies. The American people don't like Trump's policies. But getting a deal has been an incredibly difficult task over an issue that has divided the two parties for years and years. Right now, Jake, there is a meeting in the Senate with top officials from the administration, including the Homeland Security Secretary Ali Mayorkas, along with top senators from both parties, trying to see if there's any sort of agreement that can be reached in principle. But Jake, even if there is, getting it through both chambers and getting it all done, wrapped up through the House and the Senate by Christmas time, seems highly unlikely. As the House is prepared to recess this week, the Senate potentially as well, kicking it into next year. Jake. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN chief correspondent uh, and anchor of The Source, Caitlin Collins, now to talk about this and much more. Uh, Caitlin, President Biden, uh, moments away from taking questions from reporters uh, alongside President Zelensky. Uh, what tough questions is the White House preparing for, do you think? Well, I think one thing that, that lawmakers have been asking that they say that they have not gotten clear answers to behind closed doors is really what the end goal here is going to look like, what the end of this is going to be, but also obviously what this means for immigration. You cannot basically talk to any Republican on Capitol Hill these days about what's happening in Ukraine without them bringing up the U.S. southern border. It is something that they feel like this is their moment where they have the leverage. And so you saw Senator Schumer there complaining that the Democrats, he feels, have given Given some concessions who have moved more to the middle, as President Biden himself said, willing to make significant concessions, but not actually seeing something that Republicans are, are ready to accept yet. And they feel like this is their only moment to, to get Democrats to come and potentially vote for a bill that has those restrictions that they want, something that would clamp down on the immigration numbers in exchange for this aid. But really, Jake, what this is, is a high stake sales pitch for President Zelensky and President Biden. But so far, after President Zelensky's visit to where Amani was just standing on Capitol Hill, it has not swayed a lot of opinions. Basically, all of the Republicans who we kind of knew what their positions were going into that closed door meeting this morning with President Zelensky had the same opinion coming out of it. Some of them even left the meeting early. And you can see, Jake, just how much he's trying to make this appeal. I mean, he did it in English earlier. He invoked Ronald Reagan. He is certainly trying to get these senators to, to come around to this. The Republican senators so far has not gotten there yet. And obviously, Jake, there's even more opposition in the Republican-led House. And then that's just Ukraine um, on Biden's list. He's also uh, dealing with Israel. And he told supporters today privately that he thinks global support for Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza is slipping and that Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to needs to change his government in some ways because uh, it's difficult to arrive at any sort of uh, two state solution with the current government. He also disagreed with him 
with Netanyahu's plans for Gaza after Hamas uh, has been destroyed to, to Bibi's satisfaction, I suppose. Yeah, I'm curious to see if he gets asked about this, Jake, because, I mean, this is the most public break that we have seen yet between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu since October 7th. Because the thinking at the White House has kind of been that if President Biden is very strong with Prime Minister Netanyahu in public, that he can use that as more leverage behind the scenes to get him to do uh, or to at least listen and be receptive to U.S. pressure. And right now, what we are seeing are those quotes that you just cited there from President Biden warning about what could happen for Israel if they continue uh, going down the path that they have gone down, what's going to happen with the global public opinion. But you're also seeing Netanyahu break with Biden and say, you know, their plans, what they want to happen in Gaza on day one after this war ends, it just simply is not going to happen. He is saying that the Palestinian Authority is not going to be in charge of Gaza, which is something that you've heard President Biden, Secretary of State Blinken, Vice President Harris, others float this idea. But so far, you know, President Biden has really left the more direct criticism to come from those other top officials of his, not he himself voicing it like he is now. So it will be fascinating to see, you know, what he says publicly here in front of the cameras as he's been, you know, quietly building up more and more criticism of what Israel is doing. Back to the Ukraine aid. How much is former President Trump's grip uh, on the Republican Party and his influence on the Republican Party uh, playing into so many of these Republicans blocking the aid uh, and I don't know how many of them are doing it because they actually want this border policy to be part of it. And how many of them are doing it with border policy just as an excuse? They just don't support aid for Ukraine. I mean, Jake, how many times have we seen Republicans in control on Capitol Hill and they have not gotten any kind of significant immigration bill passed? I mean, immigration has always been a priority for them. I'm not saying that, it, that it's disingenuous that they don't care about the border. And we've seen it is true. The numbers at the border, the crossings are, are skyrocketing in recent weeks. We've seen that playing out. And I don't think anyone in Washington would deny that the southern border is a problem and that it needs to be fixed. But you are seeing them tie it directly to this in a way that we haven't seen. And they were already fading on their public support for Ukraine. I mean, you see Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that she doesn't even believe Ukraine aid should be tied to the border, that that should even be brought to the floor for them to vote on. And Senator Lindsey Graham told President Zelensky that today, that he should thank Speaker Johnson for even bringing that to the floor, given just how high the opposition is within the Republican Party, uh, certainly in the House. A lot of that obviously does stem from former President Trump, but also they're watching public opinion slip away, and they are taking advantage of that, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. You see on the right side of your screen the podiums and the microphones ready to go. We should see President Biden soon at the White House alongside Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Their joint news conference should begin any moment now. We're gonna bring that to you live. And, and this programming note, we are in Iowa right now ahead of a special CNN Republican presidential town hall with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We're just a few hours away from that. It's live tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. DeSantis will take questions from Republican caucus goers. We're gonna squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. And Russia, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov says they are watching the Biden-Zelensky meeting, quote, very closely. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Russia's capital. Matthew, Russian leader Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, must be feeling pretty good watching the U.S. debate over whether to send Ukraine more military aid and, and hearing all the skepticism uh, from Republicans. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it probably is very satisfying for the Russian leader to uh, sort of sense that Western resolve uh, and the US resolve may be, uh, you know, maybe shaking a little bit. But I think there's also awareness that this could still go either way. You know, this is being held up predominantly, although not exclusively, by a US domestic issue, the situation on the on the southern border. And there is still, you know, despite misgivings among some Republicans, you know, a lot of support for Ukraine. I think there's a lot of awareness of that uh, inside Russia. You look at Russian state television and they're ridiculing this visit. They love to ridicule uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, sort of like painting him as a sort of puppet whose strings are being pulled by Washington uh, and talking about how he's going cap in hand, essentially uh, begging for money again uh, from Washington uh, as the only way he can survive. But, you know, again, the Kremlin says it's watching this very closely. And it wouldn't be saying that if it didn't attach significance to the outcome of this meeting, because it, it knows all these meetings or, or, or this decision, because it, it knows very well that the billions of dollars that Ukraine has already received in military aid have had a devastating impact on the battlefield when it comes to Russian troops. We heard that, um, that, that uh, estimate from uh, that intelligence report that, that's come to us, uh, that 87% of Russia's armed forces had essentially been destroyed as a result of this conflict. Um, and of course, if there are billions more uh, in terms of uh, military aid given to Ukraine, well, you know, that's going to have a, a, you know, more of an impact as, as well. And that's a, uh, something that's going to cause a political price in the future for Putin. All right, Matthew Chance uh, in Russia for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring in right now uh, two CNN contributors, former CNN Moscow bureau chief, uh, Jill Dougherty and, and uh, New York New Yorker, rather, staff writer Evan Osnos. Uh, Evan um, has written a, a great biography of President Biden. Evan, what do you think um, hurts President Biden more in 2024? Would it be failing to deliver on Ukraine aid or would it be uh, conceding to Republicans uh, on their desired border policy? Well, in some ways, you know, these are issues that is it's his responsibility to lay out the stakes. I think that's what you're likely to hear from him. We, we know from polls that Americans are more inclined to spend money on our own southern border than perhaps on foreign wars. Americans are exhausted by it. It was one of the issues that Joe Biden ran on, in fact, in 2020. And yet at the same time, he has made a case. And for much of the last two years, Americans have believed pretty emphatically that it was important to try to stop Vladimir Putin from going across Europe. I, I think one of the things you should look for is for him to uh, essentially lay out that this was Putin's bet. Putin's bet was that eventually Americans uh, would be divided and would no longer support this war. And for that reason, it is a false choice to say it is one or the other. You can do both. And uh, the White House has already said we're willing to compromise on border, uh, but we have to be able to do two things at once. Yeah, I mean, he's, Putin is willing to go all, all the way and keep pushing and pushing. But uh, Jill, I mean, he's lost 87 percent. Uh, of his fighting force. I mean, Biden has been way tougher on Putin uh, than Donald Trump was. Still, um, this Republican-led holdup of U.S. aid to Ukraine must must feel like Christmas came early for Putin. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is his idea, his idea. And in fact, we're hearing it today from that intelligence report that was released, is to erode support. And he has done it in two different ways. He's done it with Europe and the United States, trying to divide them. And now, almost without his trying, 
just sitting there. He has the U.S. Congress divided about this between uh, the White House and the Congress. So, of course, he's going to be happy. And I, I think that it's really important to realize that the significance, the implications of having Vladimir Putin even be perceived as winning this are really grave. This is it's not a border issue in that sense, a domestic issue. This is an international issue in which the United States will be perceived as a country that cannot keep its commitments. Putin will draw conclusions from this about the United States being weak, about NATO being weak. And when Putin thinks that people are weak, he pushes farther forward. And so he will be, in my opinion, he will be much more aggressive and he will try to take chances in other countries in Europe. Evan, The Atlantic's David Frum has a theory on the, the border funding provisions. Uh, he wrote this article today titled, Why the GOP Doesn't Really Want a Deal on Ukraine and the Border, saying, quote, suppose Republicans did extract a big border concession in 2023. Suppose they got everything they wanted. Then suppose their policy worked. And the flow of asylum seekers really did taper off dramatically in 2024. Would not the result of that success be only to strengthen Biden's reelection chances and hurt Donald Trump's? Maybe the reason Democrats are having so much difficulty getting to yes with Republicans is that many Republicans are committed to no, regardless of what the offer is. Now, I'm not saying I subscribe to that theory, uh, Evan, but but how do you think the White House can get out of this one, assuming Republicans really are not willing to compromise on this border provision uh, debate at all. I do think Democrats are concerned. Look, you heard House Speaker Mike Johnson say today that really all that has to be done here is for uh, the White House and for Democrats in the Senate to take up the House Republican bill on immigration, H.R. 2, which it's worth remembering received a total of zero Democratic votes. Look, that's not a position that is inclined towards compromise. You've heard the president say we are willing to compromise on this. They are already talking about changing the standards by which uh, migrants can get asylum. So there is room here. And uh, but I think you're also likely to hear from Democrats that they are confident that in the end, the Trump era immigration program, which is in many respects what is being reintroduced here, was not popular. It was not popular with voters as, as early as the 2018 midterms. And it is not popular with them now. I think Democrats feel like they're on solid ground when it comes to that issue. But they want to compromise. They want to get some version of this done. I don't know how well they have they have messaged that, though. I don't know how well they've gone into detail about what they actually object to uh, that the Republicans are proposing. Uh, Evan Osnos, uh, Osnos and, and Jill Darity, stay, stay with us. Uh, right now, uh, we are, of course, standing by for the joint news conference with President Biden and Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. We're going to take a quick break uh, and break in if the news conference begins. We are expecting it at any moment. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. 
When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Any second now, we're expecting President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to walk out of those doors you see uh, to the right of your screen uh, and begin a joint news conference. Uh, the focus, of course, will be on Ukraine's need for additional U.S. aid uh, in order to win their counteroffensive and beat back their invading Russian forces. Uh, while we're waiting there, let's bring back in former CNN Moscow Bureau Chief Jill Doughty, uh, and New Yorker uh, staff writer Evan Osnos, who's written a, a biography uh, of President Biden. E- Evan, um, we should note this is all coming against this very challenging foreign policy backdrop for President Biden, uh, not just about Ukraine, but also in terms of Israel. And we just heard uh, behind closed doors, he was voicing some of his frustrations and some of his disagreements uh, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, talking about uh, how he thinks their government, the Netanyahu government, is not able, not not willing to deliver a two-state solution, which is the only way he sees this peacefully ending, uh, and how also they disagree on what comes next for Gaza after the war against Hamas is over. Uh, Netanyahu has indicated they, he wants Israeli forces to stay. Uh, President Biden and other Western leaders do not want that. Look, that's a relationship that has been challenging for a very long time. Joe Biden will tell you that Bibi Netanyahu has a photograph uh, uh, that Biden gave him uh, when he was a a young senator in which he uh, inscribed it with the message that uh, I love you, but uh, I don't agree with you on anything. There is a way in which this relationship, particularly under the pressures, the complexities of this war, uh, was only going to get harder. I think when the president talks about something the way he did today, that is with the full knowledge, frankly, that it is not going to stay behind closed doors, quote unquote. It is a way of sending a message uh, to uh, the Israeli government to say, uh, we need you to be listening to what we're saying. We're concerned about what happens after this, uh, after the, not just uh, what's happening in southern Gaza, but then also what happens after that. The, the, when Biden talks about a two-state solution, he means it. And this is in some ways perhaps the hardest thing for the two sides to be able to begin to uh, speak more frankly about. But Biden is beginning to do it. And I think you should expect to hear more from that. And Jill, what do you think uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin is specifically going to be looking out for uh, as he as he watches President Biden change his tone a bit on Israel? Because Putin, even though he has met with Netanyahu in the past, Putin has been pretty strongly force, uh, voicing support uh, for Hamas, uh, even though Putin's own background uh, includes uh, some pretty strong action against uh, Islamist terrorists uh, in his neck of the woods. 
Yeah, but you know, Jake, um, they look back at the old Soviet Union when the Soviet Union supported liberation movements. And so uh, Putin, in the way that he is doing in so many different places, he's exploiting that to say that the United States is on the side of imperial colonial powers, and that would, in his mind, equal uh, Israel, even though Putin wants a relationship with Israel. But I think he wants a relationship with the, uh, the global South, the developing world, more at this point than he wants that. And more than anything, he wants to score points against the United States and against Biden. And Biden's in a very sticky situation. And Evan, um, I know that you know um, that President Biden and his entire team um, that have been managing the Middle East portfolio are very frustrated uh, with the Israel Defense Forces. They keep telling them uh, to do more to avoid uh, civilian casualties, to do more to let in humanitarian aid. And they've been very disappointed uh, at the degree to which the IDF and the Netanyahu government have just said, at least with their actions, no. You know, I, I see this as part of, in some ways, larger context, Jake, that is directly related to the press conference we're about to hear about. Joe, Joe Biden uh, has framed this moment in global affairs as an attack in so many ways on free societies. He saw the attack on October 7th as an attack on a free society. He believes Vladimir Putin's uh, attack on, on Ukraine is, in its own indirect way, a war against democracy. And so his goal more broadly, and I think you're about to hear that a bit today, is to try to bring people back, to remind them of why it was that they felt so committed to this war in Ukraine uh, when it started, and uh, in effect to also remind indirectly, I suppose, the leadership in Israel that he has to put this into a logical context for Americans. Uh, and if this begins to feel too far from the goal of protecting a free society, then he has a harder time making a case for it at home. So uh, this is I inevitably all part of a, of a broader project. Evan and Jill, stay with us. We're going to try to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. Hopefully, uh, the two presidents will come out uh, and start speaking to the press. Any second, when that happens, we will be right there. Any moment now, we're expected to hear. Uh, we're expecting to hear from President Biden and Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky in a joint news conference at the White House. We're going to take you to that joint news conference as soon as it begins. But until then, uh, I am here, uh, actually in Iowa for a reason. We are covering the 2024 race, and there was a major, major pending endorsement, which tops our 2024 lead today. Sources are telling CNN uh, that Republican Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire in the first in the nation primary state, will officially throw his support behind former ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. That will happen tonight at a rally in his great home state of New Hampshire. The goal here, slow the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, who continues to dominate the 2024 race. Let me bring in CNN's Jessica Dean. Uh, we are here, obviously, in Iowa, the first in the nation caucus state ahead of tonight's CNN Town Hall with uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who you have been covering. Uh, and Sununu obviously considered him as well. Uh, the only person I think he wasn't concerning was Donald Trump. He thinks Donald Trump is a, it would be bad. Um, it does seem as though 
uh, DeSantis is putting all his eggs in the Iowa basket. Though. I think that is exactly right. And if you talk to people around him, they will say as much. He's moved a lot of staff here. He's done all 99 counties, the full gla- Grassley, as it were. And he keeps coming back here. They feel like this is a really good spot for him because his message they think should resonate with these evangelical voters that really make make up such a large block of the Republican Party in Iowa. And their whole thought is, if you do well in Iowa, you get all this momentum, and and that kind of can change the trajectory of the race. Of course, if you talk to, to Nikki Haley's people or Chris Christie's people, they think they can do that in New Hampshire. Uh, but they have put a lot of their efforts here in Iowa. And so that's why tonight is particularly important for, for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, because he really wants to do well here. Yeah, he's got five weeks to, to turn it around. Um, and uh, one of the things that's interesting also, like we were talking to Tim Alberta a few days ago. He has a book uh, about the, the new era of, of white evangelical Christians. And he said um, that the old era is over where somebody like um, Santorum yeah. or Huckabee, Mike Huckabee, yeah. Mike Huckabee, people who were very conservative uh, and lived uh, lived their religion. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't just talk it. They actually... Had conservative family. He's a Southern Baptist. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, could come here and do really, really well in Iowa, uh, and that would help them in their presidential campaign. Although either neither of them went on to become the candidate, the nominee. But we're in a different era, and Alberta's thesis is that a lot of white Christian uh, evangelicals they understand Donald Trump is not of them; that he's not religious. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But that he is a um, this is, I'm paraphrasing Alberta now, but something like he is a barbarian to fight the barbarians. He's so, like, he's their warrior. Right. That's going to protect. I think that within that faith too, they look at somebody who's been persecuted, like they're seeing him being persecuted and that that feels familiar to them. That to your point, he is, is going out and acting on their behalf, even if he is not one of them. Right. And look, we have that Des Moines Register poll that came out here yesterday that gave us the nice snapshot of kind of where we are five weeks out. And he's still at 51%. 51%, DeSantis, 19%, 19%. and Nikki Haley, 16. 16%. But we're still five weeks out. So yeah. anything could happen, but that's a big, that's it's a big, a big hill. Yeah. yeah. Jessica Dean, thanks so yeah. much. We are standing by uh, waiting for President Biden and Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, to, to come out for a joint news conference. They appear to be uh, running on Biden time, a bit behind schedule. Uh, we'll bring that to you live as soon as they step out. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. Uh, plus, of course, the other major event on the Hill this week, the consequential move today by House Republicans on efforts to impeach or at least begin an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Stay with us. Bringing you some live images uh, from the White House right now. You see the microphones ready. You see the, the podiums there all dusted off. We're standing by for the joint news conference. It's set to begin any moment with President Biden and Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, but until they come out, uh, President Biden is pushing for more and more Ukrainian aid. And as he's doing so, House Republicans uh, took a major step towards possibly beginning down a road of impeaching President Biden. CNN's Melanie Zanon is on Capitol Hill. Uh, Melanie, uh, back when Kevin McCarthy was speaker, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he already opened some sort of impeachment inquiry. What's going on now? What's the difference here? 
Yeah, that is exactly right. So this impeachment inquiry has actually been going on for several months after former Speaker Kevin McCarthy unilaterally opened this inquiry back in September, in part because at the time they didn't have the necessary Republican votes to be able to do so. But now Republicans are making this new push to formalize their inquiry because they say they want to strengthen their hand in court when they try to enforce subpoenas. And as of right now, it looks like that resolution is set to pass as almost the entire Republican conference has lined up behind that resolution. But Jake, that doesn't mean the votes are going to necessarily be there for impeachment itself. And that is because key moderates from swing districts like Don Bacon of Nebraska say they have yet to see any evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors. And he also told our colleagues earlier this morning that he doesn't think it's ultimately going to be there. So while he does back this idea of opening the inquiry to try to get all the facts and information, he thinks it's best to let voters decide, not members of Congress, about Joe Biden's fate. Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona, thanks so much for that update. Really appreciate it. Uh, we continue to stand by for that joint news conference at the White House with President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. We're going to bring that to you as soon as it happens. Stay with us. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper in Des Moines, Iowa. Our breaking news this hour. At any moment, we're going to hear from President Joe Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The Ukrainian leader today is in the nation's capital to try and secure additional aid for his war-torn country, which is badly needed to fend off the attack by Russia. It's a tall order. Billions of dollars in aid are tied up in Congress with lawmakers at something at an impasse over funding for border security, which Republicans have insisted be added to the package. Zelensky today met with top lawmakers from both sides of the aisle, including uh, the brand new House Speaker, Mike Johnson from Louisiana. Uh, many Republican holdouts who met with Zelensky say a deal remains unlikely and their minds were not changed. Let's go straight to CNN's MJ Lee, who's at the White House for us. And MJ, what, what are we expecting to hear from the two leaders beyond just a pitch to get this money from Congress to uh, Ukraine. Uh, Jake, this press conference obviously has been quite delayed, uh, but we did just see the Ukrainian delegation and the U.S. delegation uh, take their seats in the front row. Uh, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, uh, other senior officials are now in the room. So we should be seeing President Biden and President Zelensky uh, enter the room any moment now. Uh, I think uh, White House officials and U.S. officials have made the point uh, that this visit is about so much more than the issue of uh, U.S. funding for Ukraine, uh, which uh, clearly on Capitol Hill right now, uh, stands at an impasse. Uh, they are saying that the world is watching right now, uh, including Russian President Vladimir Putin, and that this is a kind of visit that can send a message to the world at such a critical moment in this conflict uh, about the U.S.'s continuing steadfast support for Ukraine, uh, and that there is another... I'm going to toss it back to you, Jake. 
Okay, here's the president uh, of the United States and the president of Ukraine. Uh, let's watch and listen in. Please, have a seat. President Zelensky, it's an honor to welcome you back to the White House. When President Putin launched his brutal total invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022, and Russian tanks rolled over the border toward Kyiv, there were those who thought Ukraine wouldn't survive for a month. So no one, no one should forget that for you to be here today, again today, nearly two years later, and for Ukraine to be stand strong and free is an enormous victory already. Putin has failed, failed in his effort to subjugate Ukraine. The brave people of Ukraine have defied Putin's will at every turn. Backed by the strong and unwavering support of the United States and our allies and partners of more than 50 nations, 50 nations in Europe and the Indo-Pacific. And Ukraine will emerge from this war proud, free, and firmly rooted in the West unless we walk away. The American people can be and should be incredibly proud of the part they played in supporting Ukraine's success. We'll continue to supply Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can, including $200 million I just approved today in a critical needed equipment, additional air defense interceptors, artillery, and ammunition. But without supplemental funding, we're rapidly coming to an end of our ability to help Ukraine respond to the urgent operational demands that it has. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. The United States and Congress must, as I asked last week, and this, it's stunning that we've gotten to this point. You know, we need to fully appreciate, fully appreciate how it's wrong, how this is being viewed around the world and being used by Russia. Russian loyalists in Moscow celebrated when, when Republicans voted to block Ukraine's aid last week. The host of a Kremlin-run show literally said, and I quote, well done, Republicans. That's good for us, end of quote. Let me say that again. This host of a Kremlin-run show said, well done, Republicans. That's good for us. That's a Russian speaking. If you're being celebrated by Russian propagandists, it might be time to rethink what you're doing. History, history will judge harshly those who turn their back on freedom's cause. Today, Ukraine's freedom is on the line. But if we don't stop Putin, it'll endanger the freedom of everyone almost everywhere. Putin will keep going and would-be aggressors everywhere will be emboldened to try to take what they can by force. Mr. President, I'll not walk away from Ukraine, and neither will the American people. A clear bipartisan majority of people across the United States and in Congress support your country. They understand, as I do, that Ukraine's success and its ability to deter aggression in the future are vital to security for the world at large. And I have repeatedly made clear from our first day in office, we also need Ukraine to make changes to fix the broken immigration system here. We also need Congress to make the changes to fix the broken immigration system here at home. My team is working with Senate Democrats and Republicans to try to find a bipartisan compromise. 
both in terms of changes in policy and provide the resources we need to secure the border. Compromise is how democracy works, and I'm ready and offered compromise already. Holding Ukraine funding hostage in the attempt to force through an extreme Republican partisan agenda on the border is not how it works. We need real solutions. I also ask Congress for funding for Israel to take on Hamas and confront multiple other threats backed by Iran in the wake of the October 7th assault. National Security Advisor Sullivan will travel to the region this week and meet with the Israeli War Cabinet, as I have met with, to emphasize our commitment to Israel, as well as the need to protect civilian life and ensure more humanitarian assistance flows and reaches into Gaza for Palestinian civilians. Secretary Austin will also travel to the region this week to step up the international efforts to protect the free flow of commerce through the Red Sea. The entire world is watching what we do. So let's show them who we are. America stands for freedom today, tomorrow, and always. America stands against tyranny and against oppression. And America stands with the people of Ukraine. Thank you again for being here today, Mr. President, and thank you for everything Ukraine is doing to hold the line for liberty in the world. The floor is yours, Mr. President. Thank you very much, Mr. President, dear journalists. I'm glad to be here and personally thank you and tell you how Ukraine values what we've achieved together, defending life and freedom. In Ukraine, we are fighting for our country and freedom, and also in Europe, we say, for our freedom and yours. And this motto resonates not only in our country, not only in our hearts, not only in Ukraine, but also in Poland and Baltic states, Moldova and others. When freedom is strong in one country, it is strong everywhere. When it burns in one soul, it presents its merits to, to others. Ukrainians have twice, Ukrainians have twice led revolutions this century, defending freedom. For nearly two years, we have been in a full-scale war, the biggest, the biggest since World War II, fighting for freedom. We stand firm, no matter what Putin tries, he hasn't won any victories. Thanks to Ukraine's success, success in defense, other European nations are safe from the Russian aggression, unlike in the past. Ukraine can now tackle the Russian dictatorship, so our children and other nations won't have to shed their blood and sacrifice lives defending against Russian aggression. We've already made significant progress We've shown that our courage and partnership are stronger than any Russian hostility. And we have freed 50% of the territories Russia occupied after February 24th. And we won the Black Sea and are reviving our economy. Thanks to maritime experts, Ukraine's 5% economic growth this year proves our effective partnership. And we have shown no, no Russian missiles can overdo the powerful American Patriot systems. 
Thank you very much. And even during war, we are reforming our country and strengthening our, our institutions. Today, President Biden and I discussed how to increase our strengths for next year. First, air defense and destroying Russian logistics on Ukraine's land. Mr. President, thank you very much for your supporting, supporting us. And in these areas, like our victory in the Black Sea, we aim to win the air battle, crashing Russian air dominance. This will, this will intensify our ground advances in 2024 with our control of the skies. Who controls the skies controls the war's duration. And today I would like to thank, of course, for yet another significant defense package with our defenders' value very much. Second, yesterday I met with American, American defense company leaders. They advised us on how to make our defense industries work faster and more effectively. Thank you, President Biden, for this important initiative. We started with you. Together, Ukraine and America can strengthen democracy's arsenal. And this is vital for other free nations and the U.S. as it involves your companies, technologies, and technology advancement and job creation. And it is important to know that two-thirds of American support for Ukraine remains and works in the United States. Third, I informed Mr. President that Ukraine has fulfilled all the recommendations of the European Commission regarding the preparation for a decision to start negotiations on Ukraine's accession to the uh, EU. And we constantly communicate with European leaders about our joint steps sanctions and political efforts to pressure Russia. American leadership is crucial, is keeping this unity together, a unity that serves the entire free world. And I thank America for new sanctions, and today we discussed Putin's further isolation and making him pay for his aggression. It's very important that by the end of this year we can send very strong signal of our unity to the aggressor and the unity of Ukraine, America, Europe, the entire free world. Everything we talked about today will help us in the year 2024. Today's discussions in the White House and in Congress across both parties and both chambers with a speaker were very productive. And I thank you for the bipartisan support. As we approach Christmas, on behalf of all our Ukrainian families, separated by war, and all sons and daughters on the front, Ukraine's greatest wish is to near this war's victorious end. No one, no one but Putin wants, wants a prolonged war. We dream of a Christmas in a peacetime, of course, and we are working to turn our battlefield success into peace. And we are heading there together with you, and thanks, of course, to your support. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you, America. Slava Ukraine. Thank you. Look, uh, we're going to 
alternate asking questions. We're going to ask a total of each ask two questions, and I will ask the first question. Uh, I will ask. I will recognize the first question asker. <laughs> I'll ask a question to all too. But um, uh, Danny Kemp. Um, thank you, Mr. President. Um, for President Biden, um, Ukraine's counteroffensive has, uh, has stalled in recent months. Uh, Congress is blocking aid, uh, and Vladimir Putin appears ready to just wait things out. Um, so, what is the strategy for the U.S. and Ukraine next year to try and turn this uh, turn this around? And if that fails, uh, at what point do you say to Ukraine, as a friend, uh, that it is perhaps time to start looking at peace talks? And for President Zelensky, um, welcome back to Washington. Um, can I ask you, did you uh, hear what you wanted to hear from Congress and from President Biden? Um, and, uh, or are you indeed more worried than when you got here? Thank you very much. Well, let me uh, answer the question first. Let's put this in perspective. Remember how far Ukraine has come. Russia has failed, failed thus far in trying to erase Ukraine from the map and uh, subsume it into Russia. Ukraine has taken back more than 50 percent of its territory seized since February of 22. And it's pushed back Russian, the, the Russian Navy so Ukraine can export grain and steel to the world through the Black Sea. And thanks to the incredible courage of the Ukrainian people and the bipartisan support from our Congress, but it's not just American support. There are more than 50 countries, 50 countries helping Ukraine with military, economic, and humanitarian assistance. 50. The burden sharing, the U.S. has put up $75 billion, and our allies and partners have put up $100 billion. And more than 90 percent of our security assistance to Ukraine is being spent in the United States to provide weapons for Ukraine and replenish our stockpiles and build our industrial base. We need to ensure Putin continues to fail in Ukraine and Ukraine to succeed. And the best way for that to, to do that is to pass the supplemental. Yeah. Yeah. Can I answer in Ukrainian? Please. Thank you. First of all, I would like to add uh, to the words of Mr. President uh, Biden uh, uh, about successes. I think that uh, these were not easy successes. Nonetheless, they were quite serious. They were serious steps forward. Indeed, we gained victory on the sea. We destroyed ships of the Russian Federation. We throw the remnants of their fleet to Russian territorial waters. Yes, they uh, have something uh, in the Black Sea uh, in the vicinity of our temporarily occupied Crimea, but we are going to proceed this activity. Our guys destroyed 20,000 of Wagner mercenaries. These are serious terrorists who were massing everywhere on African continent, in Syria, in Ukraine. There were a lot of mass 
and nucleus of this terroristic organization is not existing anymore. Yes, we had a lot of uh, problems, but nonetheless we were able to do this. Moreover, Russia were not able to seize uh, any part of our territory, any village, any town. I'm not talking about large cities. And we are going to proceed with this. It is good without saying that we have objective, we have clear plan, but if you allow me, I am not able to tell you in public uh, on the details of 2024 operations. If I heard what I want, I heard a lot. Surely I told what I wanted to. I feel and experience this support from President Biden administration, uh, from senators, and we've been talking with the speaker. I got this signal. They were more than positive, but we know that we have to separate worlds and particular result. Therefore, we will count on particular result. Thank you. Your turn to ask a question. Yeah, sorry. Telekanal Inter, please. Inter, please. Oh, thank you for taking my question. Dmitry Anopchenko, Ukrainian television U.S. correspondent. Uh, many Republican voices doubt the ability of Ukraine to win the war. Uh, Center once uh, recently even told that Ukraine need to cede some territories to stop fighting. Panovolo Demare, uh, to be very honest, have you even considered the, such a step to cede the territories to stop fighting? And Mr. Biden, could you please clarify the policy and of your administration, the strategy of your administration on Ukraine? Is it about helping the country to defend itself or to win the war? Because it's obviously such a difference. I will begin. Okay. So, first question to me. So, uh, do, your question is, if we are ready to give up our territories? Mm. The question is not only about our words or thoughts. The question is about for what we are ready and for what we are not. How? Ukraine is able to give up its territories. That's insane, to be honest. We are mentioning God very often. That's not about Christianity. We have our people there, we have our families there, we have children there. That's part of Ukrainian society, and we are talking about human beings. They are being under tortures, they are being raped, and they are being killed. And those voices which offers to give up our territories, they offers as well to give up our people. That's not a matter of territory, that's a matter of lives, of families, of children, of their histories. I don't know whose idea it is. But I have a question to these people if they are ready to give up their children to terrorists. I think no. We want to see Ukraine win the war. And uh, as I've said before, winning means Ukraine is a sovereign, independent nation and uh, that can afford to defend itself today and deter further aggression. That's our objective. Uh, Trevor Reuters, Reuters. Thank you, sir. Um, first, a question for both of you. Um, given the Republican skepticism of the Ukraine effort, do you worry that a second term for President Trump would be the uh, end of an independent Ukraine? That's for both of you. And then for you, uh, Pres President Biden, um, 
just an update, if you could, on the, the situation in Gaza, uh, on the reports that Israel has begun flooding Hamas tunnels, um, and just the, the offensive in southern Gaza generally. How long do you think that operation should last? Thank you. First of all, with regard to uh, political support for Ukraine, there is a strong bipartisan political support for Ukraine. Small number of Republicans who don't want to support Ukraine, but uh, they don't speak for the majority, even the Republicans, in my view. We're in negotiations <clears throat> to get funding we need, not to promise, uh, not, not making promises, but hopeful we can get there. I think we can. And you're right, the world's watching what we do. Would you send a horrible message to an aggressor and allies if we walked away at this time? And it would hurt our national security. Do you want me to answer the other question as well? With regard to — say it again. Sorry. So the, the question was just um, if you could talk a little bit about the Gaza operation, Israel flooding Hamas tunnels, and if you've had conversations with uh, Bibi Netanyahu about how long that operation should last. Well, I have had conversations with Bibi Netanyahu, and, uh, and uh, I want to make sure that uh, we don't forget uh, what we're doing here. We have to support Israel because they're an independent nation that's being I mean, the brutality, the inhumanity, the way in which Hamas treated <clears throat> the Israelis, and I mean, raping and burning and beheading. I mean, it's just, it's just beyond comparison, beyond comparison. And uh, to anything else that I've seen since I've been here, and I've been around for a long time. But I think that uh, we have made it clear to the Israelis, and they're aware that the independent, the, the safety of innocent Palestinians is still of great concern. And so the actions they're taking must be consistent with attempting to do everything possible to prevent innocent Palestinian civilians from being, being hurt, murdered, killed, lost, etc. And uh, look, um, it doesn't uh, lessen the responsibility going after Hamas to innocent Palestinians and, and, uh, and Hamas. Uh, look, we have responsibility to protect citizens and ensure they have access to humanitarian assistance. That's why I've worked so hard with our Arab friends as well as the Israelis to get humanitarian assistance into Israel, literally getting up to 140 trucks loaded with gear, loaded with food, loaded with everything that is needed by the Palestinians, including fuel. So, you know, Israel has stated its intent to fulfill these responsibilities. Uh, it's very difficult. With regard to the flooding of the tunnels, uh, I'm not — well, there is assertions being made that there's quite sure there are no hostages in any of these tunnels, uh, but I don't know that for a fact. I do know that, though, every civilian death is an absolute tragedy, and Israel stated its intent, as I said, to, uh, to match its, uh, its words with uh, its intent with, word, with actions. That's why, uh, that's, why I was, that's why I was talking about today. Question three. I uh, guess I asked that. No, I just asked that. It's your My turn. turn. Your turn. 
So, uh, addressing your question very quickly, uh, I've been talking a lot with representatives of both parties. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans uh, proved uh, full-pledged support. And we will see, but before this, we've always been trusting in support of our strategic partner, the United States, and we will consider that it will continue in this way, and Ukraine will not remain alone against such a critical terrorist as the Russian Federation. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Yaroslav Dovopol, Ukraine Forum News Agency, Ukraine. Next summer, uh, the United States will host uh, uh, an anniversary NATO summit, summit in Washington, D.C., which, which raises a lot of hope, especially for Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky, uh, what does the Ukrainian side expect from this summit? And uh, do you hope to hear direct invitation for Ukraine to join the alliance? And uh, President Biden, under what conditions is the United States ready to support the initiative of inviting Ukraine to be member member of NATO? Thank you. Thank you for your question. Uh, I will answer very quickly on this very complicated question. We are not allies till now. We are not we, we are allies, but we are not members members of NATO. So that's why I think I will pass this question to <laughs> our big friend, President Biden. Well, look, I'm very proud that how strong and unified NATO has become, and now it's even larger. I. Uh, Putin wanted the findalization of NATO when I met with him in, uh, in, uh, in, in Geneva right after I was elected. And he's gotten the NATOization of Finland instead. And NATO will be in Ukraine's future, no question about that. But we, as we said in Vilnius, Ukraine will become a member of NATO when all allies agree and conditions are met. Right now, we may have to make sure they win the war. And, uh, you know, we launched a joint declaration of support alongside President Zelensky and the G7 leaders in Vilnius, outlining a long-term commitment to supporting Ukraine's defense needs. We also hosted a defense industry conference last week here in D.C. to get that critical work done. So it's a step at a time. Thank you all very, very much. This concludes the Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. This concludes the press conference. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Distinguished guests, please remain in your seats while the principals depart. President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr uh, Zelensky speaking uh, briefly and then taking some questions from reporters as <clears throat> President Zelensky seeks more aid for Ukraine's fight uh, against Russia and the Russian invasion that began in February 2022. President Biden saying that he remains hopeful uh, that more funding for Ukraine will come through despite uh, an impasse in Congress right now amidst some Republican opposition. Zelensky reaffirming that the notion of Ukraine giving up any territory to Russia is out of the question. It's not even really 
the topic at hand, he said. It's about whether or not the people of Ukraine will continue uh, to be um, under the, the oppressive rule of Russians who are killing and raping and making Ukrainians suffer. Let's bring back former CNN Moscow Bureau Chief Jill Doherty uh, and Evan Osnos of The New Yorker and author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. Jill, um, tell us what is so different about this moment than what we've seen from these two leaders uh, in the past. Oh, well, I mean, just think, you know, the last time he was here and uh, speeches to Congress, uh, a really rousing welcome. And also, I think, a very emotional tone. You know, he's, uh, Zelensky is a very good communicator. And in this, in the beginning of this, it was actually pretty dry. I think both the president, uh, Biden and Zelensky, had their talking points ready to answer that question of failure. You know, is Ukraine failing? So they both pointed out, you know, taking back 50 percent of the territory that Russia took, pushing back on the Black Sea, et cetera. But I think the, you know, the emotional part came, and you noted that when Zelensky was asked, are you ever going to give up any territory? And he immediately bridled at that. And that, that's really one of the dilemmas here that some people are saying, the war has gone on for so long, why don't you just give up some territory and end it? And what he is saying is that's not going to happen. I think also Biden was uh, challenged to define what's this war about? What is the purpose? And he said, essentially, uh, Ukraine defending itself and deterring further aggression. And that's, you know, probably the most specific thing that we've heard so far in terms of strategy. Finally, Jake, one quick thing. Uh, the, the, uh, Zelensky was asked, do you have a plan in the war for uh, 2024? And he essentially said, yeah, I have a plan, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Right. Evan, uh, do you think that this event uh, and this general trip of President Zelensky to the United States coming to Congress, uh, the joint uh, press event with President Biden just now, all of it in totality, do you think um, this has strengthened or weakened Biden's hand as he continues to negotiate with Congress over this bill uh, for Ukraine and Israel aid? Well, I think Biden laid out in fairly unambiguous terms what he sees as the stakes. I mean, it was quite striking, actually, to hear how forceful he was saying, uh, in effect, uh, actually said explicitly, if Russian propagandists are cheering for you in Moscow, uh, you may want to rethink your strategy. I think there is a feeling that uh, by summoning some of America's memory about why it was that Americans were so committed to Ukraine's defense, that that has a way of beating back some of the, perhaps, the Republicans. Republican uh, uh, consensus on this question. But I think one of the key points here was also, as Jill indicated, what happens next? You know, did Republicans get a sense from Vladimir Putin, or sorry, from Vladimir Zelensky? Did uh, Joe Biden get a sense from Zelensky that there is a plan to end this war? This is, you know, one of the messages out of today is this is not an open-ended commitment. And this is a moment to, uh, to also see the end uh, of, of America's responsibility there. All right, Evan Osnos and Jill Doherty, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. As uh, President Biden stood alongside Ukraine's president, he was asked also about Israel and its military operation in Gaza uh, and his criticism of Prime Minister Netanyahu, his change in tone as more calls uh, for innocent Palestinian lives to be protected are made. We're going to talk about that after this quick break. Stay with us.
Just moments ago, you heard President Joe Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky holding a joint news conference. After Zelensky spent the day on Capitol Hill shaking hands, answering questions, asking Congress for, mili for more military aid to support Ukraine's defense against Russia's ongoing invasion. Uh, former Secretary of Defense under President Trump, uh, Mark Esper, joins me now. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Secretary Esper. So Biden and Zelensky showing unity in many ways, but um, they also seem to have different views of what Ukraine can actually accomplish militarily. The behind the scenes, the U.S. might be urging a, a more conservative approach on the battlefield. Ukraine wants to be more aggressive. That's what our sources are telling us. What do you make of that? Who do you think is right? Well, I, clearly, uh, uh, President Zelensky is going to continue to trumpet what he said all along, that he wants full restoration of, of Ukrainian territory to include Crimea. And of course, he put other things on the table, such as funding for reconstruction from Russia, holding Putin and others responsibility, uh, responsible for the atrocities and whatnot. Uh, on the U.S. side, maybe if that's true, and the Western side, there, there is a, obviously a sinking reality that this, is, this conflict now has settled into a, somewhat of a stalemate. The question is, is uh, what happens over the winter months and uh, in the springtime, when would be the chance for another offensive? Will at that point in time, uh, the Ukrainians have enough of Western technology to include the long promised uh, F-16s, uh, more tanks and everything they need? And will they adapt their tactics to make another run at breaking the Russian lines? And I think we won't know. Um, if you were Secretary of Defense right now, what would you advise the president to do? Would you advise him uh, to send more uh, weaponry, to spend more uh, aid, uh, that this is a fight worth fighting for Ukraine all the way to the end until Russia is completely out? I mean, if 89 percent of their forces have been decimated, it's not completely unsuccessful, even if it is a stalemate. Right. Look, I think at the political level, President Biden needs to come out more frequently, more forcefully, Talk about why the United States is supporting Ukraine. Talk about the strategy and talk about the end state that he wants to see. We really have never heard that. Uh, secondly, I would argue that we do need to pass a supplemental. We need to get more funding there to support Ukraine. It's not just about uh, Moscow invading a, a, a smaller neighbor and, and conducting a brutal war. Uh, that's part of it. But it also speaks to Western resolve and to the fact that China is watching uh, how we react, how we respond, how long we hang in there. We'll, ha we'll, we'll have a bearing on how Xi Jinping sitting in Beijing uh, thinks about maybe going after Taiwan. So for those reasons, I think we should continue to stay in the fight. And thirdly, I would say we need to push to, to move all the equipment that, uh, that President Zelensky has asked for more quickly. Uh, and, and finally, I guess the Europeans need to do more. The Europeans, I should say, our other NATO allies need to do more in terms of military arms and equipment helping out Ukraine as well. Let's turn to Israel, because just this hour, the United Nations General Assembly, uh, that's all of the countries that are members of the United Nations, they voted overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly to demand a ceasefire uh, in Gaza. I, I suppose that's not a surprise, given the generally anti-Israel bent of the UN General Assembly. But what is your reaction? Yeah, look, I share the same view. The, uh, the UN has lost the moral high ground a long time ago, and maybe they never had it when it came to this issue. So look, it, it matters on one hand because it's a count with regard to the number of countries, but we need to continue to stand behind Israel. Yes, they need to continue to do more to make sure that they limit casualties, um, uh, particularly as we enter this next phase. And they need to do more in terms of providing 
uh, humanitarian relief for uh, the innocent people in, in Gaza. But at the end of the day, they have to defeat Hamas or else we're going to continue to go through this cycle over and over again. Hamas leadership has already said that they they celebrate the attacks on October 7th and, and want to keep doing it. So we have to support Israel. They, ne they need to defeat uh, Hamas and we need to um, uh, work with them to help them uh, address the other issues. Today, President Biden, in off-camera comments to Democratic supporters, uh, said that uh, Israel is beginning to lose global support for its war against Hamas, and that, quote, I think Netanyahu has to change, and with this government, this government in Israel is making it very difficult for him to move, specifically talking about the two-state solution. He added that the current Israeli government, quote, doesn't want a two-state solution. He also expressed disagreement uh, with Netanyahu on what comes next in Gaza after Hamas is defeated. Uh, Netanyahu wants to keep Israeli troops there. What, what do you make of this disagreement? Well, I, I think we the big un unanswered question is what does happen after uh, the military operations are done, after Israel defeats Hamas? Clearly, there will be a period of time in which uh, Israel, the IDF, occupies Gaza while, while that is figured out. But uh, there is unanimity, I think, mostly across the political spectrum in Israel that they do not want to, to occupy uh, Gaza permanently. So clearly there needs to be another option uh, for that. Uh, an Arab force is unlikely. A UN force is certainly unlikely. Uh, the only other option out there right now is a Palestinian authority taking charge. But I, I think this is more of Israel's view, too. It can't be this Palestinian authority because most Palestinians regard the PA as incompetent and corrupt. So we need a change of leadership in, 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 um, in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority to begin with. And certainly if they would be the ones to manage um, uh, uh, Gaza in a post-Hamas era. Last question for you, Secretary Esper. How much do you think this current campaign uh, in Gaza against Hamas is not only intended to root out Hamas, but also a deterrent against Hezbollah, Iran, any other country, uh, the Houthis perhaps, uh, any other forces uh, that might also be planning terrorist attacks on Israel, saying, if you do this to us, this is what will happen to your country. Therefore, do not do this to us. How much do you think this is rooted in some sign of deterrence? Well, clearly, clearly that message has been sent, whether intended or not. And, and I think, if I recall properly, a, a senior Israeli official had said something to that effect. But look, these groups are all connected. I've said multiple times, whether it's uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, Shia militia groups in Iraq, you name it. It all goes back to Iran. Iran is funding, supporting, inspiring, uh, providing arms and equipment, conducting training, you name it. It all goes back to Iran. And I think that is the bigger deterrent message being sent. And I, look, I give the Biden administration credit on this part for sending uh, carrier strike groups, additional U.S. forces to the region to deter um, these other actors, Hezbollah and Iran in particular, from um, opening up another front. So I think it's important. I think, you know, a bigger showdown is coming at some point. We need to address Tehran one way or the other. Yeah, that carrier strike force is not there for Hamas. It is there for Iran. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, uh, Nikki Haley uh, says she's about to have a great day in New Hampshire. We have a pretty good idea why she's so confident of that. That's next. We're back with our 2024 lead, and you might be wondering why I am in a theater in Des Moines, Iowa. Well, I'll tell you. In just a few hours, I'm going to moderate a Republican presidential town hall with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who will take questions from 
future Iowa caucus goers. CNN is also on the campaign trail in New Hampshire. I'm in the first of the nation caucus state. New Hampshire is the first of the nation primary state. And that's where former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is expected to get a major endorsement this evening. So I'm going to talk right now, even though I'm in Iowa, to somebody in New Hampshire. Jeff Zeleny, formerly of the Des Moines Register, tell us about this expected endorsement. Well, Jake, Iowa and New Hampshire really are echoes of one another. And six weeks from today, the New Hampshire primary is going to uh, decide how far this Republican race goes. And so Nikki Haley is going to be collecting the endorsement tonight from New Hampshire Governor uh, Chris Sununu. He, of course, had been thinking about running for president himself. Since uh, the last several months, he's been sizing up the Republican field. He's been appearing with all of the candidates, and he is making his case tonight for Nikki Haley. He believes she is the candidate who can turn the page from former President Donald Trump. Of course, this comes as a major blow to former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who also had been hoping for that endorsement. So, Jake, now the race for second place, uh, you there in Iowa with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has the support of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Now here in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley will have the support from New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Again, emphasizing it's all about the race for second place, but Donald Trump is still in commanding lead of this entire Republican campaign. Jake? That's right, and he has the endorsement of the third in the nation contest in South Carolina, Governor uh, McMaster. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Let's discuss this all uh, with Doug High uh, and with Eric Erickson. And Doug, you were the communications director for the 2012 GOP Iowa caucus. You told me in July that if Trump wins Iowa, you think it's over. Um, what do you think DeSantis needs to do tonight in this town hall and then over the next five weeks to change that? Well First and foremost, I think Nikki Haley timed her announcement with Governor Sununu to give you another question to, to ask tonight. Um, but what I would tell Ron DeSantis to do is what I've tried to tell these candidates and campaigns to do for months now. If you want something to change, you have to change. And what we've seen so often is some rhetoric here and there about new generations, I'm a winner, maybe Trump and Republicans spend too much, but not really going after Donald Trump in a way that would do anything to take him down a peg or 12, and he's about 12 pegs up at this point, to win the nomination. What we've seen from all of these candidates, whether they're, by and large, whether they're still in the race or they're out of the race, is they've not been willing to do that hard work to actually win the nomination. It le really leads to the question of what's then the purpose of your campaign and why are you running? Eric, Nikki Haley's support in Iowa has remained basically flat at 16 percent since October, uh, even as some candidates have dropped out since then. Um, what does that tell you? Look, I, I think I was probably more aligned with a Trump or DeSantis than Haley. But, you know, Ted Cruz, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, they all won Iowa and then never got the nomination. So you can't count Haley out. But I, I agree with Doug. If neither DeSantis nor Haley really wants to aggressively go after Donald Trump from the right, uh, there's no point in this. At this point, they look like they're running for second place. And to take out the front runner, you got to take out the front runner. Doug, New Hampshire Governor Sununu is expected to endorse Nikki Haley tonight, as you heard Jeff Zeleny report. CNN's polls conducted in New Hampshire last month has Nikki Haley in second place at 20% behind Trump's 42%. It is worth noting that in the latest Des Moines Register NBC News poll, Iowa voters say Governor Kim Reynolds' endorsement of Ron DeSantis did not make a difference at all in their decision. Do you think Sununu's endorsement of Nikki Haley will be any, any different in New Hampshire? I mean, they're both fairly popular governors yep. in their respective states. 
Ultimately, it's welcome news that she's going to try and push as, as much as she can. We've heard so much talk about Nikki Mentum over the past few weeks. The numbers haven't borne those out. This is a tangible way for her to demonstrate that. But ultimately, the numbers are going to have to bear that out. We've not seen it in the past uh, for anybody who's gotten an endorsement. There's nothing to suggest that this time is different. Eric, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis seem to be in this cage match for second place. They're attacking each other as, D as Donald Trump seems to just be like slow walking uh, to the nomination. He's now selling mugshot digital trading cards, capitalizing uh, on uh, Georgia's election subversion case against him. But, but wait, there's more. If you buy the mugshot cards, apparently you also get to be the proud owner of a piece of Trump's mugshot suit. Trump is teeing up other candidates for attacks at this point. Uh, why not make a big swing? And what would your big swing be? What would you tell DeSantis to do? What would you tell Nikki Haley to do in terms of going after Trump to, and really a silver bullet? Because they have done little things here and there, as Doug noted, but nothing, nothing that's really taken, taken Trump down at all. You've got to sustain it. And, and for Ron DeSantis, I think you can make the case that Donald Trump didn't do the things that Ron DeSantis could. Or there's a great example in Iowa. They had the, the satanic uh, shrine now in the state capitol. It was the Trump administration that actually gave the tax exempt status to that group. But you could point that out with Nikki Haley. It's the budget and deficit, the business issues that she cares about. She can point out that Donald Trump didn't do those things. They've got to do sustained attacks, though, that they mention it and then they go away. The other thing, frankly, they could do is actually do the CNN debate in Iowa and the two of them, whether it's just them on stage, actually differentiate themselves. Yeah, as of right now, I believe DeSantis has accepted. We're still waiting to hear from Nikki Haley. Right. Nikki, we're here. We're waiting for you. Doug, hi, uh, Eric Erickson. Thanks so much. Uh, we are just Thank a you. few hours away from a special CNN Republican presidential town hall live here from Des Moines, Iowa with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. You can watch that right here on CNN tonight at nine Eastern. Uh, meantime, powerful testimony today at the Rudy Giuliani defamation trial. One witness on the stand in tears. That's next in the Situation Room. I'll see you tonight at nine. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.